0: If I was to ask you the question, what is it that you live for? I wonder how you'd answer. Uh, I'm not after the right answer. We all know that the right answer in church, what is it that you live for is Jesus. But the real answer for you, what is it that you live for? Is there an answer that appears straight away? Is there something that consumes you? Is your mind blank? I don't know what I live for. Is there a few things floating around? Take a pick. What is it that you live for? There's some people that seem to be consumed by one thing, aren't there? There is one thing that they live for. William Wilberforce, if you saw the movie recently, made it his life's goal to abolish slavery. Don Bradman would practice for hours with a cricket stump and a golf ball to be a better batsman. I was down at the show yesterday And there's these people who are just good at what they do. There's the sheepdog guys who spend their life training their dogs. There's the woodchoppers that are just so skillful with their acts. And I kind of think, gee, you know, what am am I good at? I wonder what could have happened if I had devoted myself to something like that. Some people seem to have a goal and their life is shaped by it. And maybe you're one of those people. Um, If you took a snapshot at my life at any one time and looked what motivated me, I reckon you could end up with, with lots of things. This week it might be something to do with church that I'm excited about. Next week it might be something as mundane as getting the car registered. After that I might be excited about a sermon that I'm working on. The next week it might be the tax return that I'm frustrated about. And if you stopped and asked me, I'd say, yes, my life is about living for Jesus. But in the middle of that I seem to be zigzagging all over the place from one thing to the other. And if you just took a a snapshot of what I was thinking about, you might think, you know, what is this guy living for? Maybe you're the kind of person who's on about one thing. Maybe you're the kind of person who just, there's nothing in your life that you're passionate about. Maybe you're kind of a bit all over the place. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul calls us as followers of Jesus to be very purposeful in the way that we live our lives. And we've seen over the last few weeks, haven't we, that the Apostle Paul had a goal in life. Whether things were going well for Paul or whether they were going badly, whether he was in jail or whether he was free, whether he was getting beaten up, stoned, kicked out of town, it's very clear in all of Paul's life what motivated him. Paul lived to preach the gospel. And that's why... We've seen Paul's been so upset about these people in Corinth who are preaching a false gospel. That's why Paul's been defending himself, not because he's so much worried about his own reputation, but he's worried about the gospel. The new leaders in Corinth, they've been saying, what matters is what you can see in a person. And frankly, we don't see a lot in the Apostle Paul. He's not very impressive. And you remember, as we think back over the four weeks, Paul's response has been something like, you're right, I'm not very impressive, I'm weak, I'm fragile, I've had plenty of things in my life to humble me and make me a broken person. Isn't it great that God is a great, a God of comfort who comforts us in our troubles? Isn't it great that God is a God who chooses broken, troubled people to share the gospel with other people? Isn't it great that God chooses to put his precious gospel in jars of clay like us? And I think chapter 4 verse 7 is is probably a good summary of all that we've been looking at over these past four weeks. Chapter 4 verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, when God looks for people to be messengers of his gospel, he doesn't look for confident people. God's not after supermodels and sporting heroes and the cream of society to be his messengers. God wants people who realise that they're not up to the task. Chapter 2, verse 16. God deliberately puts his treasure in weak people so that there's no confusion about where the power comes from. So that when people look at your life, they think, well, There's nothing impressive about this person. It must be what God's done in them. Now, that's what the Corinthians need to tell these new whiz bang gospel preachers who've arrived in Corinth. And we find out that's why Paul's writing here. So have a look with me at today's passage, chapter 5 and verse 12. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. In other words, Paul's now writing to the Corinthians not so much to defend himself to them, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul is now wanting the Corinthians to move on to being able to defend him. Somehow, because I'm a minister, I don't know how I ended up on it, but I'm on this mailing list And it seems that I get invited to every Christian conference in Australia, no matter what its flavor, they must just think I've got nothing better to do with my time. I won't tell you the name of this one I received a couple of weeks ago, but listen to the descriptions of some of the speakers. John is a young revivalist who operates powerfully in the prophetic and the healing. Signs and wonders follow him wherever he goes. Kira operates in a strong prophetic anointing and moves in power evangelism, which releases God's glory and power. God has placed a mandate on her life to walk in miracles, healings, signs and wonders. Stephen is an inspirational speaker. He's ministered around Australia and internationally. The miraculous happens frequently during times of prayer. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? Doesn't really sound like 2 Corinthians, does it? Strength in weakness? I mean, it's easy to point the finger at other people, though. What about us? Here at DPC, when we're looking for, say, a new minister or a Bible study leader, what are we going to look for? It would be very easy to look for someone who's confident, wouldn't it? Gifted speaker. Perhaps with entertaining sermons, lots of good illustrations, is that what matters? chapter two, twelve we're not trying to commend us chapter four twelve sorry, chapter five, twelve <laughs> we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. See, what matters is not what you can see a person's giftedness on the outside, what matters is what is in their heart. And that's what we've seen over the past four weeks. Paul has defended himself not by saying how good he is, but by saying that the gospel that he has is genuine and that his life is genuine and sincere and matches it. What matters is what is in the heart. And what is in Paul's heart is a desire to live for Jesus. Have a look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What's on Paul's heart, the thing that compels Paul is that one died for all and therefore all died. The one, of course, is Jesus, who died for all. The all is us. When Jesus died, he achieved something that benefits us all. You know, when someone on your soccer team scores a goal, the whole team benefits from it, don't they? Uh, When someone brings a cake along to your Bible study group, the whole group benefits from their work even though they had nothing to do with it. Jesus has done something in his death that we can kind of all benefit from. What is it that he did that spills over to us? Paul tells us down in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, what Jesus has done for us is that he has taken our sin on himself. You might have heard this before, but imagine this book is your sin. It's too small. That's more like it. That's more like my book. Imagine this book is your sin. Everything that you've done wrong. It's, a, it's, it's like a barrier between you you and God, it's in the way. That's what God sees when he looks down on you, your sin. We're not God's friends. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be brought back to God, but we've got this sin that is just in us, on us. But we can't fix it up, can we? We deserve God's punishment. We deserve to face judgment for what we've done in the body. Back last week in verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive What is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad? There it is, the stuff we deserve judgment for. And Jesus had no sin. He was perfect. And verse verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the great swap that happened on the cross. Our sin was placed on Jesus like this, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No sin. That's what verse 19 is about. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. See, rather than count our sins against us, rather than tally up our sins to us, our sins were counted to Jesus when he died on the cross in our place. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, just let that sink in. That is the best news you could hear. Without Jesus, things are not okay between you and God. Things are a mess. You deserve God's judgment. But because Jesus died for sinners and because God is on about bringing people back to him, God offers for you to be reconciled to him. Reconciliation is a great thing. Reconciliation means to have things fixed up so that people can be friends again. I mean, reconciliation between cultures that are at war is a wonderful thing, isn't it, if it can be achieved. Reconciliation in a marriage that has gone wrong is a great thing if it can be achieved. But the best reconciliation of all is the reconciliation between us and God. And that's what God offers us. God offers to make us a new creation, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God is calling you back to him. Right now this morning, he's offering that you can be his friend. And if you want things to be made right, between you and God they can be if you ask God to forgive you and if you turn your life over to him Jesus has done everything that needs to be done from God's side you need to take up his offer and there's no better time to do that than now look at chapter 6 verse 2 God says in the time of my favor I heard you In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It's right there. Now that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was an enemy of God. He used to go around killing Christians and then he was reconciled to God. He became God's friend. And because of that great work that God did in Paul... Paul says he's now compelled to live his life for Jesus. This this will change people's lives. If you're forgiven by Jesus, it will give you something to live for. This will grip us and captivate us. Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. People do all sorts of things in the name of love, don't they? Love compels us to do all sorts of crazy things. Buy flowers, go to the movies, change jobs, move towns to be with someone that you love. Michael Clark spent $200,000 on an engagement ring for someone that he loves. Love can compel us to do all sorts of things. The difference here is it's not Paul's love for Jesus that compels him to do things. It's Jesus' love towards him that compels him. Christ's love compels us. See, if you can just begin to see how much Jesus loves you, then you will be absolutely compelled to live your life for him. And if you're not compelled to live your life for Jesus, then you haven't yet fully understood his love for you. Now, I reckon this is the biggest problem at DPC. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who are compelled here to live their lives for Jesus. And you know that as you talk to them, don't you? They are captivated by Jesus. They're captivated by Jesus' love for them. They're living their lives to serve him. And that may be you here this morning. But that shouldn't just be some of us. It shouldn't even be most of us. It should be every one of us. Back in chapter 2, Paul said that the the gospel to some is the stench of death. To the others, it's the aroma of life. You're you're either for Jesus or you're against him. But it's not the option that it's it's kind of some bland smell that, that, that doesn't upset you. Jesus wants people to be passionate about him. Jesus says to the church in Revelation that because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now the Corinthians were in that danger, that somehow having tasted the goodness of God, somehow they've become blasé about it, they've gone off after other things. And Paul here is calling them back to God. Paul wants the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. Look at verse 20 of chapter 5. We, Paul and Timothy, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I used to always think that that verse there was talking about evangelism, talking to people who are not yet Christians. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, come to Jesus and be forgiven. But as you actually look at it in the context of 2 Corinthians, it's not just about that, is it? Paul here is calling the Corinthians who've started to drift away from Jesus to be reconciled back to God again. They've already received God's grace See chapter 6, verse 1, the very next verse. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. They've already received God's grace. And Paul's now pleading with them on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Have things fixed up between you and God. It seems that as Christians, even though we've been forgiven, stuff can come along and mess us up And we start to go off track. It's like in a marriage, isn't it? We talk about reconciliation in a marriage. Husband and wife can develop problems between them. And if they don't resolve it, it can end in all sorts of things. And sometimes they go off and get a mediator to help them. The aim is reconciliation, to have things fixed up. Sadly, it doesn't always work. Paul is saying to the Corinthians here, Be reconciled to God. Live for the one who died for you and was raised again. And in this reconciliation between us and God, God is there and he's willing and he's done everything that needs to be done. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and there's a problem between you and God, the problem is from your side and it needs to be fixed up. If you have a job or a work commitment or something that is getting in the way of you and God taking you off track, Paul would say to you, we implore you, we beg you, we urge you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, fix it up. If there's a relationship that's getting in the way between you and God, Paul would say, fix it up. If there's something else that you're passionate about that is getting in the way between you and God, Paul would say, Be reconciled to God. Put God first. Because what matters in life as we live now is living our lives for Jesus. John Piper has a really good book called Don't Waste Your Life. Um, You might want to look it up and read it. Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper. I just want to read a paragraph from it. He says... Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball and collect shells sounds like a good life. This is what John Piper says about it. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a kind of spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious, God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball, and collecting shells. Picture them before, the, the, before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over and against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. What is your goal in life? What is it that you are devoted to? If you understand Jesus' love for you, then you will live for him. And if you're not living your life for Jesus, if there's a problem between you and God, you need to be reconciled to God. You need to have it fixed up. Following Jesus is not about what is the minimum that I can do to follow Jesus? What is the minimum that I can do to keep him happy? Jesus says that it's we give up everything. We deny ourselves and we live for him. So don't settle for some half-hearted, wishy-washy, lukewarm, fake Christian life. The life compelled by the love of Jesus, is the best life. It might look strange, might look like we're out of our minds now, but when Jesus returns, he says the life lived for him will be the life that you will not regret. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Are you going to live your life for him who died for you and was raised again? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for jesus love for us that is more than we can understand and father we pray that we might know that love know the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of it we pray that we might know this love that is beyond understanding and father when you bring us to see how much jesus has loved us We pray that we might live our lives for him. Amen.